Good afternoon. My name is Sherry Nero, and um, I'm happy to be with you via recording today. And let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you created the human body. Uh, we live in a world of sin. We would like to learn a little bit more about how to help ourselves, our family members, our neighbors when the need should arise. Please give us wisdom and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. And we recently studied the story of the Good Samaritan with our children. It was their Sabbath school lesson. It's probably the most famous first aid story in the Bible. And if you haven't read it recently, it's a good study. And today's topic, first aid for the homesteader, will be presented from a layperson's perspective. I am not a medical professional. I'm a wife, a mom, and a little bit of hiking and camping experience here and there. Um, I have tried to use credible sources to get my information from, but I do encourage you to uh, do your own research as well as check with medical professionals in the area where you live. Conditions can be very different depending what part of the country you live in or which country you live in around the world. Uh, so I encourage you to do your own research. Right up front, I will strongly recommend um, a CPR course, um, that's cardiac pulmonary, oh, the cardiac CPR course, I forgot what it stands for. Anyway, first aid and CPR course. Um, I did mine recently through the American Heart Association. It was a wonderful experience. A single mom who's a nurse and she does training on the side for a little bit of extra income. Because of COVID, we did it outside in a park and I was able to pray with her at the end. I highly recommend you getting some training for yourself. At least one person in the family, preferably all the adults and teenagers, should know how to do CPR. Do it now before your gardens get going in spring. And um, I'm going to share my screen here quickly. I think... Um, you know, we're talking about rural and uh, different people can have different ideas of rural, exactly how rural is rural. <laughs> um, you can see there's quite a different scenario presented here. On the one side, there's some buildings. It looks like a little town, nearby mountains, and then other folks could be way out there. Um, you know, hundreds of kilometers or hours away from the nearest neighbor or a hospital. So I would like you to take the time to think about your particular situation. How rural are you? Um, how long does it take you to get to a hospital? How long would it take for first responders to get to you? Sometimes there are local volunteers that do respond to a 911 call if you're in the States. So something to think through, the time factor is really critical. Um, for example, if, if you are two hours from the nearest hospital and there is a significant accident or injury, 
that's going to be your problem to deal with in those first critical hours. So if you're very rural, <laughs> you need to have quite a bit more training under your belt or educate yourself. Um, you also need to be very deliberate with your prevention. Think through scenarios. How can I prevent things from happening? And also the more robust your first aid kits will need to be. If you're a number of hours away from medical care. So think about your personal situation. I'd also like to point out nowadays, um, the times we're living in, um, it's becoming apparent that we really do need to be able to help ourselves a little bit more than we're used to maybe. And this is good information to have. Excuse me. So talking about prevention, um, a very simple thing is letting people know where you're going to be, how long you expect to be there, and when you expect to be back. So simple, but most people don't do it, but this could save your life. If you're out on a farm, if you have a big farm, or if an accident happens, someone knows you were supposed to be back by 3 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. comes around and you're still not back, they know something's wrong. So that's a good habit to put in place in your home. A simple precaution. Um, a few other things, just being very observant. Um, if you're out and about on the homestead or on the farm, keep an eye on the kids, you know, look at the visitors or people that are with you. Um, just use your eyes, use your ears, be observant. And that said, what kind of incidents are most likely to take place in a rural situation or on a homestead? And I looked that up. And they say in the agricultural industry, tractor rollovers are a leading cause of death. Um, something else is four-wheel or quad bike accidents um, or crush injuries, exhaust burns. And um, interestingly, I found some statistics that 33 kids are injured every day in agriculture-related incidents. They might not even live on a farm. They might just be visiting. And um, that's quite a lot of kids every day. I hadn't thought it was that high. For children, transportation-related incidents, again, um, falls, slips, trips, contacts with other objects, and um, machinery accidents, and drowning. Um, so I hope you look at your farm vehicles with new eyes and also take a look at the water that's around you. I actually would like to start with drowning first. And the reason is I never knew that drowning is the number one cause of death for children under the age of four. And it is the third cause of death worldwide for children between the ages of five and 14. Um, farms have creeks, ponds, you know, rivers, stock tanks, buckets with water, um, rain tanks. <laughs> There's always some water somewhere 
on a farm or a homestead. And um, I also would like to address the common perception that drowning is loud. They'll be waving and shouting help. Um, that's actually not the case. Drowning is quick and it's quiet. Within 30 to 60 seconds, someone could be drowning. Um, especially with small children, sometimes they just literally sink under the water. There's no waving, there's no yelling. Um, for older kids or adults, you might just see their head bobbing. They're not actually coming up and they're not going forward. They're just kind of bobbing. That is a big warning sign. Um, so change the way that you think about what it looks like or how you would recognize if someone were drowning or not. It's quick and it's quiet. Um, you know, most rescues out of water are in water that's less than five feet deep. It doesn't have to be deep water. Um, so if a child is missing, always check the water first. That's the first thing you want to do is check the water, a pond, a creek, whatever it is, go there right away. You want to get them out of the water as quickly as possible. And hopefully they will start cuffing and spluttering and be breathing on their own. And then you want to get them dry into warm clothes and prevent hypothermia. Um, it's a little more serious if when you get them out of the water, there's sand or blood or vomit in their mouths. In that case, you want to roll them on their side and let the airway clear by the, everything draining. And if they're not breathing, you would like to start rescue breaths as soon as possible. Pinch their nose and breathe into their mouth. Um, you want to also check for a pulse. If there's no pulse and no breaths, then you will need to start CPR as soon as you can get them onto a hard surface where you can do chest compressions. The faster CPR is started, the better chance of survival they have. Um, it's, it's really a good idea to get some CPR training. If clear or frothy liquid starts accumulating, don't worry about it. Just keep doing CPR. And, um, you know, as soon as medical personnel arrive or as, you know, you need to get them to the hospital if no one can get to you because the first 48 hours are critical. They're at risk of pneumonia, infections, as well as heart failure. So we're gonna look at uh, bruising or crush injuries now. Just for mild bruising, I sit for 20 minutes and I make a homemade comfrey glyceride, just soak com crushed comfrey leaves in glycerine and for a couple of weeks and then drain, drain the glyceride out. And after I put ice on, I just rub that comfrey glyceride on and it really prevents a lot of the terrible black and blue bruising. Crush injuries are often associated with bleeding and fractures. Um, so you want to take care of any bleeding that's taking place. We'll talk about that a little bit later. My brother recently had a situation where 
the jockey wheel on a trailer failed and the hitch crushed his hand, broke a couple fingers. Um, you always want to get a crush injury checked out because of compartment syndrome. Uh, we don't have time to go into that right now, but it's good to get a medical evaluation. There may be internal injuries that are not immediately visible. Now, what if someone gets under a four-wheeler or a tractor and they're pinned and you can't get them out? Um, you know, once help comes, if they've been crushed for less than an hour, you can, you know, work together and get them out from under there. However, if they have been crushed for more than an hour, um, it's very important to wait for trained and equipped medical personnel to get there um, because if that object is suddenly removed, for sure after four or six hours, but even sometimes after one hour, um, the sudden release of metabolic byproducts from that crushed tissue can actually end up killing the person when it gets dumped into their systemic circulation. So that's just something to remember. Only remove the object from off of them if it's been less than one hour. Um, I just wanted to throw in something about asthma. You know, if you're way out there and it's a good distance from a hospital or it would take a significant amount of time for somebody to get to you, um, what if someone has an asthma attack? Uh, this is something that I would certainly try. First, ask them, do you have a rescue inhaler? Can you take me to it? Or can you tell me where it is if they're able to? <laughs> um, they might not be able to. So if you can't, if you don't have one on hand and they can't tell you or show you, um, Something that's worth trying is to soak a towel or a cloth in ice cold water and slap it on their back and give them some ice friction or ice cold friction on their back over the adrenal gland area. Um, you would hope to stimulate the production of adrenaline uh, with a bit of cold shock over the adrenal glands. Um, that might buy you some time and I would definitely get them to medical help. They may need a nebulizer treatment or more, and it would be good to get a prescription. If they're staying on the farm a bit longer, they would be good to get a prescription for a rescue inhaler so that if they've lost it or forgot to bring it. So cuts, wounds, and bleeding. <laughs> um, it's kind of a given if you're on a homestead or on a farm situation you will be coming across cuts, wounds, and bleeding. <laughs> so hopefully not the severe kind, hopefully just the smaller ones. Um, small cuts, you know, good old soap and water and a little bit of sunshine. And um, I did want to mention steri strips. It's, if you have um, elderly parents with you, Elderly people often struggle with skin tears when their skin gets so fragile. Um, I don't know if you can see this. Steri strips can be very helpful for just closing up those skin flaps or closing up some little cuts 
or slightly bigger cuts. Um, and larger cuts, again, wash with soap and water uh, or normal saline if it's very large and you would like to do that. And you can apply pressure to stop the bleeding if it's bleeding quite a bit. Um, these little handy butterfly closures are nice to keep on hand if you need to pull something together. You, they're not sticky in the middle, so they stick on either side. You can stick one down and pull the edges of the wound closed and then stick it down on the other side. And you can put a little row of them you know, next to each other if you need to. Um, for puncture wounds, um, puncture wounds, you really want to make sure that you've flushed it out well or rinsed it out well. And a little irrigating syringe without a needle is very useful if you have a puncture wound. Um, just flush it out with uh, soap and water, warm soap and water or saline solution. You really want to make sure there's nothing left behind and that it's clean, that the puncture wound is clean. Um, a large abrasion, now abrasion, you know, like road rash, just a scraping. Uh, if it's large enough, you can still lose a significant amount of blood. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind just because it's not a deep injury doesn't mean you can't lose a lot of blood depending on the size or the surface area. Um, if you have a big wound that's really bleeding, <laughs> what you would like to do is uh, hand the person a gauze or some gauze um, while you put on your gloves. <laughs> you know, if it's a family member, that's up to you. You might not want to use gloves, but uh, otherwise, please give them the gauze. You put your gloves on and you, while you give them, the, when you give them the gauze, instruct them to apply pressure to slow that bleeding down. Um, if the gauze quickly saturates, just get more gauze and stack it on top. Don't peel it off and put another one on. Just keep stacking it on top and keep applying pressure. And hopefully it'll stop. <laughs> and if you need to, you can also wrap a little bandage or something around it to create a kind of a pressure compress, a pressure dressing. Um, this is not a tourniquet. <laughs> Don't cut their circulation off. You want to be able to put two fingers under there still, and they mustn't have any tingling or numbness anywhere in their extremities, depending where it is. Um, you just want to add pressure to stop the bleeding. Uh, there's also something, this is just one I have called bleed stop. I don't know if you can see that. And uh, it's like a little powder you can pour over to help clot. And um, you would like to watch for infection. Usually infection will manifest within the first 24 to 48 hours. So just keep an eye on that. You know, there's going to be some redness and swelling, but you don't want bright red, hard skin that's just really painful and itchy. Um, now, what if there's oozing, flowing, dark red blood? A lot of it. 
Um, then you want to start thinking there's a severed vein somewhere, a severed vein. Um, or if there's sprain, spurting, bright red blood, then you're thinking an artery has been cut or severed. So that's not a good situation. It is possible for someone to bleed out in five minutes or less. So if you see flowing dark red blood or spraying and spurting bright red blood, prompt action is called for. And if you have, you know, if you're really rural, you should get some of those pressure dressings. Um, if you have nothing else, make a tourniquet out of something and, you know, stop that bleeding quickly. Um, you want to make a note of the time that you put the tourniquet on. Um, if you have to, just take some blood and write it on their forehead. If you don't have a marker or a pen or something. But the time that it's put on is important for medical people to know. And don't peek. You know, don't keep trying to see, did it stop? Did it stop? <laughs> just leave it. And hopefully you or someone would have called 911 um, as fast as possible. So just for point of reference, an eight pound baby has just over one cup of blood. So it gives you a picture of how much they have. An 80 pound child has about 2.6 liters, about three quart jars, three Nalgene bottles, somewhere in that range. And an average adult has five to six liters of blood in their body. So, you know, when you give blood, you lose half a liter when you donate blood. Um, if you've lost one to two liters, you can go into shock. And if you've lost more than two liters of blood, that's very serious. Um, so that just gives you a bit of a frame of reference. Animal bites and scratches. Um, typically it's pets. Um, we don't often get bitten or scratched by wild animals, uh, depending where you live. And something to remember is that dog bites look worse. Cat bites are worse, um, especially if it's a bite near a joint, near the face, the neck, the hand, or the foot. Um, because cat's teeth are sharper, it's more of a puncture type wound, introduces bacteria down deep, and they can actually damage tendons and ligaments. Um, so, you know, if the, this is something that I just go straight to antibiotics for. <laughs> a bad cat bite or a bad cat scratch. I personally don't do natural remedies with it. I just go straight to antibiotics, but that's me. Um, especially if it's, as I said, near a joint. So you would like to get it checked out by a doctor if range of motion is affected um, or if it's in those places that I mentioned. Um, I also want to try and prevent them <laughs> as much as possible. So talking about bug bites and stings, this is another thing that you'll come across a lot on a homestead or on a farm. 
And you know, there's, there's a whole range. Uh, some people barely get a bump from a bug bite or a wasp sting or a yellow jacket sting. While for others, um, you know, one fire ant bite could put them into anaphylactic shock if they've had trouble with fire ant bites before. Um, I had a friend once who, I think she had maybe three fire ant bites over different periods of time and grew more sensitive each time. She actually did have an anaphylactic reaction. Thankfully, she was near a doctor and they helped her. And the doctor said to her, you must carry an EpiPen because it could kill you if you're somewhere and you get bitten again without uh, having an EpiPen with you. So just something to keep in mind, each person is, go is gonna have a different reaction. <clears throat> and uh, I keep in my bag, I have a little tube of Afterbite. Um, I'm not sure if you can see this. This is handy to keep around for kids, for mosquito bites. If you're just out and about and you're not near the house. Um, and also, I um, just a drink of water quick. My personal favorite is bentonite clay. And what I do is I mix bentonite clay with water and kind of to mayonnaise consistency. And I just keep it in the fridge and I've done experiments. It's good for a year or more. And I just keep it there in the fridge. And anytime we have a bug bite or a sting, there's nothing quite like it to just slap on some of that cold, wet, bentonite clay. Um, there, of course, there's charcoal as well, charcoal poultices. Um, personally, I've kind of gone with the clay because it's less messy and the kids don't get it all over their clothing or the house. <laughs> so it's kind of a little bit more user-friendly. And um, my personal experience with that was I was stung inside my nostril <laughs> by a bumblebee. And I just felt, you know, my face swelling, my lips swelling, and I'd never been stung by one before. And I was like, what if my throat starts swelling next? And our neighbor, who's a nurse, was a nurse at that time, um, quickly gave me some charcoal capsules to drink. And um, I remembered the bentonite clay, and I ran inside and I just packed the clay up my nose, obviously not both nostrils, but the nostril that was stung, oh, the relief was immediate. Um, so that's my personal story about the bentonite clay. I have also seen charcoal with the blessing of God um, save someone's life. Uh, we had a student camp when I was at Wildwood and it was the only camp Dr. Sherman came on. And one of the students got stung multiple times by yellow jackets. And um, when Dr. Sherman took her blood pressure in camp, it was zero over zero. And we were 30 minutes or more down a windy road from a hospital or clinic. 
And so Dr. Sherman made the decision to stay in camp, pray and put charcoal everywhere we could find a sting. She had a lot of stings at the back of her head here on her neck. So we put some charcoal in a basin with water and we just dunked, you know, the whole back of her head and neck into this basin with charcoal water. And, you know, with God's blessing in half an hour, she was talking and able to sit up a little bit. We kept her warm and kept her quiet. So I uh, definitely want to keep some bentonite clay and charcoal activated charcoal powder, a big quantity um, around. You can also keep the charcoal uh, capsules and tablets as well. I try to have a little bit of everything on hand. So choking. If uh, someone is coughing, that's good. <laughs> Reassure them and encourage them that their body is working to get it out and that if they're coughing, they're able to move air. So that's good. Um, try and just keep them calm. The problem comes in if someone is silent, the eyes are bugging, maybe they do the universal choking sign, you know, both hands around their neck. If their lips start going blue, um, call 911 and take immediate action. Uh, this is also where I recommend doing the CPR and first aid course. You will learn what to do to help infants and children as well as adults. Um, you know, even if you do not have infants or children living on your farm, farms attract visitors. <laughs> farms are like people magnets and you will have children coming to visit you if you're on a homestead or on a farm. So it's good just to know what to do. Um, sprains, strains and soft tissue injuries. Um, the tendency is to think, oh, I'll just tough it out. That is often not helpful. And one can end up with lifelong problems. <laughs> you can ask me how I know. So you don't want to tough it out. Um, you know, just stop, take stock of the situation. Um, you know, if you're way out there or if you're out and about, you're not near the house or anything, what you want to do is try and evaluate, is it usable or unusable? Um, so if you can, you know, if your range of motion is fairly good, you have most of your mobility and you can put weight on the joint, if it's a leg or an ankle, then it's probably usable and just give support with an ace bandage or something and you know you could get to the house slowly and um, when you're back home uh, keep it cold elevated you can put a compression bandage on they use rice the acronym rice rest ice compression and elevation so for sure a lot of icing not more than 20 minutes at a time though. 20 minutes, take a break. 20 minutes, take a break. <clears throat> if it's unusable, um, you know, their range of motion is, is severely affected and they have pain if they put weight on it, uh, then that's the time to maybe put on a splint and, um, you know, maybe help them get somewhere 
if you're with them. Uh, don't let them put weight on it, preferably. And um, trying to mobilize the area and get to medical help. And um, you do want to get it checked out by someone in the know, medical professional, get an x-ray. And if an MRI is indicated, <coughs> I beg your pardon, if an MRI is indicated, go ahead and get it um, because there might be something more serious going on than what you realize. Um, that was my experience recently. And I was very thankful that we did get an MRI. So what about burns? There are a lot of ideas about treating burns. Um, talking about small first to third degree burns, uh, I keep coming back to my personal favorite, raw honey. It must be raw um, because a lot of the commercial honey has been heat treated and often they add water actually to the honey. Now a first degree burn, you know, it's just a surface layer. A second degree burn, you'll be seeing blistering. A third degree burn is like a full thickness burn. It's kind of white, charred looking. Now, if it's a small first, second or third degree burn, um, as I said, I've tried a lot of things and I keep coming back to the honey, the raw honey. If it's a large, uh, large area involved, first, second or third degree burn, it's probably good to get it checked out. Um, dehydration becomes a problem. People can dehydrate quickly, burn victims. Um, things can go south very fast if there's a large area that has been burned. Not only dehydration, they're also at risk of hypothermia. That seems counterintuitive, but they lose heat quickly through that surface area that's now exposed. The covering of the skin, the protective covering is gone. So you wanna think dehydration, hypothermia, and possible shock. Watch them very closely. We'll talk about shock a little bit later. Fourth, fifth, and sixth degree burns, that's where you've seen, um, you know, like muscle, tendons, heaven forbid, bones. Um, those are medical emergencies and, you know, call 911, whatever is going to be the fastest, getting them to a hospital, calling 911, just whatever is the fastest. Try and uh, keep them warm uh, to prevent hypothermia and try and keep them calm. Um, there's something for your further personal education. You can look up the rule of nines and look up a burn chart and that can help you communicate with medical people before the help comes or before you get to the hospital and let them know how big the area is, how much surface area is burnt. Now an electrical burn, obviously <laughs> don't help them unless electricity is off or you know, it's been disconnected or something. Don't get yourself in trouble. And um, electrical burns can be very deceiving. 
on the outside, it can look like nothing happened. They're fine, but they can be severe internal damage. So if there's an electrical burn, um, I would recommend getting it checked out, taking them in for medical evaluation. For a chemical eye burn, um, if you have the means to flush, you know, normal saline um, or even just water, if you don't have saline, um, irrigate the eye while you're going to the hospital um, or until you can get them checked out. And this brings us to poisoning. I'd like to talk a little bit about poisoning. <coughs> Excuse me. If you do not have the poison control phone number already saved in your phone, now's a good time. Get your phone out and just put it in there right now. In your quick dial or in your favorites, it's just a good idea to have this number on hand. Farms and homesteads, um, you know, there's chemicals, soil amendments, um, sprays for the garden. You know, there's all sorts of stuff out there. Keep it out of reach of kids, but you know, things happen. <laughs> so just keep this phone number handy on your phone with you all the time. I wanna point out something that children have a higher surface area to volume ratio. So this means if they fall in something or have something splashed on them or paint themselves with something, they can actually absorb more than you would expect. And um, that's something to just keep in mind. So dehydration, I on the screen are two recipes um, using simple things you probably have on hand to make an oral rehydration solution. Um, giving someone water to drink if they're dehydrated is well-meaning, but not helpful because you need to replenish the sodium and chloride electrolytes particularly. Um, in summer, you really want to prevent dehydration. <coughs> As dehydration, excuse me, could lead to heat cramps which could lead to heat exhaustion, which could end up with heat stroke. Um, so pay attention to any signs of confusion or fatigue or frustration or um, poor decision-making and address it right away, especially if they get to the point of having cramps, um, you know, immediately get them to sit down, take a break, drink some oral rehydration solution, um, you know, if they're getting to the point of nausea and vomiting, that's the heat exhaustion, get them in the shade, help them drink some oral rehydration solution. You can put ice cloths to the back of the neck and ice packs or ice cloths in the armpits and in the groins to try and cool down um, the large blood vessels. And heat stroke is a life-threatening situation. So you really want to prevent it before it gets to that point. Often fainting is the first sign of heat stroke that you will notice in an elderly person. Um, so just be aware of that on a really hot day. If you suspect heat stroke, um, immerse them in cool water 
in a bath, in a creek, in a pond, whatever you have nearby. Um, put cool wet sheets over them with a fan, um, you know, the ice packs in the armpits and groin, um, get them to a hospital immediately or call 911 if that's going to be faster, but that is a life-threatening situation. Heaven forbid if they um, pass out completely and there's no pulse or breathing, you know, start CPR. But uh, we want to prevent it before it gets to that point. Hypothermia, that's the other end of the spectrum. A lot of people don't realize that you can get hypothermia pretty much at any temperature that's less than normal body temperature. Um, a lot of people actually get hypothermia in spring or in fall because they're not as well prepared in those seasons and also the weather can change quickly in those seasons. Um, wet and wind is a deadly combination. You know, in the air temperature can be 40 degrees and if it's wet and windy, you can get hypothermia in a relatively short period of time. If you're not well prepared with clothing or waterproof rain gear or something like that. So acute hypothermia would be where someone falls into a freezing cold pond or breaks through the ice into the lake. Um, it's actually easier to rewarm someone in that situation once they're out. <laughs> um, slow onset, it's a little harder to rewarm the person. So again, there's mild, uh, moderate and severe hypothermia. Severe hypothermia is life-threatening. Um, mild hypothermia, I want to go back to that one, is characterized by the umbles. They'll be stumbling, fumbling, mumbling, grumbling. So just file that in the back of your head, the umbles. And if you see somebody with the umbles, take immediate action to prevent uh, the hypothermia from progressing. If you're far away from the house or shelter, you want to keep them moving until you can get them to shelter. If you can keep them moving, you know, the activity and the exertion can help them warm themselves. Um, if you have something sugary and warm for them to drink, uh, non-caffeinated, that can help provide a little bit of fuel. And it's, you need to kind of think about it if you're in an outdoor situation stopping to take the time to rewarm them instead of getting to shelter, helping them get keep going to get to shelter could put you and anyone else in the group also at risk of hypothermia if you stop and try to rewarm them. So just, uh, you know, think things through. It's better to keep them going, get to shelter, and then, you know, no one else gets hypothermia. So... Um, if you're in areas where you're outdoors a lot, I would definitely recommend building up your wardrobe. Uh, wool is one of the best fibers for being outside. It keeps you warm when it's wet. And um, fleece it will, is better than cotton. Cotton is actually not that helpful to keep you warm. And if it gets wet, 
you might as well be naked. It's actually <laughs> make you colder than if you were naked. So something to just keep in the back of your mind if you're outdoors a lot, um, to think about starting to get some good clothing uh, as a preventive means. So one thing I do want to mention is that do not do CPR. If you find someone with severe hypothermia and they're curled up in the fetal position, they, they may look pretty much dead. There's, you can't feel a pulse. It doesn't look like they're breathing. Unless you've had very specific training for this type of situation, do not do CPR because um, they, it can actually put them into a arrhythmia that could kill them. So leave that for the professionals. Um, something you want to think about is to warm the core with moderate to severe hypothermia, focus on warming the core. So the opposite of the heat stroke and heat exhaustion, put hot packs in the armpits, the groins, or by the neck to warm the core. Don't worry with severe hypothermia, don't worry about warming the periphery or the extremities. Just focus on the core. Um, a quick mention about frostbite. I grew up in Africa, so I have no experience with frostbite. Um, just a couple of points here. Hypothermia is actually more concerning than frostbite because with frostbite, the body is letting the peripheral tissues die. It's by, and it's trying to conserve the core temperature. Um, if someone is already having frostbite, you want to get them to medical care as quickly as possible. And if there's a chance that the affected parts could refreeze after being warmed, do not rewarm those parts. Just get them to medical care quickly. And again, don't put yourself or others in danger of hypothermia um, by stopping and taking the time to try and rewarm them if you're out and about in an outdoor situation. Um, so moving along here, amputation. Ugh, this is something none of us want to think about. There are partial and um, complete amputations. <coughs> Table sores are particularly guilty of uh, this injury. And uh, the idea is to stop the bleeding as fast as possible elevate if it's a finger or something, elevate the hand, monitor the person for shock, keep them warm. And if, if it's a complete amputation and you can save the amputated part, I've heard things both ways, don't try and save it, save it. So check with the medical person. <laughs> um, some say put it on ice in a Ziploc bag. Others say, don't worry about it. And, um, Get them to medical help for sure. So a few words here about shock. <clears throat> there are many different reasons why someone could go into shock, but it's important to be able to notice it 
and take some steps to help the person. So probably what you would notice would be maybe whole body weakness, um, dizziness, a cool, clammy skin, weak and rapid pulse. Maybe they're breathing very shallowly or their breathing rate speeds up. Um, they might have nausea, they might be vomiting, um, they're confused, they're anxious. Sometimes they'll just be staring kind of blankly um, and hopefully not uh, going unconscious. So you'd like to call 911 um, and hopefully there won't take too long to get there. Stay calm yourself. Um, if you freak out, that's going to raise their heart rate. You want to lower their heart rate. So keep them calm. You stay calm and maybe help them slow their breathing down. If it won't hurt their back or injure their back, elevate their legs. And this is where a space blanket comes in particularly handy. Um, I just grabbed these at Walmart in the camping section. I keep a bunch in the car and I have some other things I'll show you just now. But um, to wrap around the person and help keep them warm. So until help arrives. Now, you know, the, it, the golden rule is don't move anybody because they may have a neck or a spine injury. But what if something's on fire and you have to move them? Go behind them and stabilize their neck with your arms grab them under their shoulders and drag them backwards while stabilizing the head and the neck between your arms. But again, that's only if you have to move them like there's a fire. So just briefly looking at the first aid kits. Um, you know, the temptation with first aid kits is to have everything, including the kitchen sink in your first aid kit. But the principle here is what you know and how you're going to apply it really is the most important thing. So um, in our car, I have a small first aid kit that I just keep in the front of the car and it's got some band-aids, some clubs, some little glow sticks if we get stuck at night somewhere, some gauze, some um, anticoagulant, if someone's bleeding, a bandage, you know, just kind of a couple basics in the front of the car. And I also keep a little CPR face shields. Um, hopefully we'll not have to use them. And then, in the back of the car, I keep a, a more robust kit and filled with all sorts of goodies. And in case we get stuck somewhere, I even have four emergency bivy bags, um, one for each of us or to share. And I have a whole bunch of stuff in here. And then at home, I have more of the kind of medicine kind of things that I just keep at the house. So 
you know, we don't use a lot of medicine, but I always do try to keep a painkiller and an anti-inflammatory, um, a, a pediatric uh, anti-inflammatory and an adult anti-inflammatory. And I always keep uh, children's antihistamine, the liquid. You can use this on your dogs too, if you have to. Um, our dog had hives one day and I was able to help him with the liquid Benadryl. I keep a corticosteroid in case we hardly ever use it. A little bit of saline solution, um, some blunt scissors, some little eye wash cups, and um, just some odds and ends like that, more syringes for irrigating, and some more bigger band-aids and dressings. So I keep that at the house. So just this will give you some ideas of you know what's useful to keep around. Again, everybody's situation is a little different. And as I said before, the more rural you are, the more robust your kit should be. One thing I forgot to mention, if you're more than two hours from a hospital or even an hour or so, you might want to get training in how to use a bag valve mask or an Ambu bag. You need special training uh, for this, but that can help you give rescue breaths to someone for a much longer period of time without exhausting yourself. So that's something you might wanna look into. And just a couple other salient points. Um, as I've said before, you know, make sure that you don't end up needing first aid yourself when you're trying to help someone else. So discretion is the better part of valor, you know, think things through uh, before you just rush out and do something. And if there are more than one injured persons, you know, sometimes the, some of them will be very loud and others will be quiet. The, tendency is for the loud ones to get help first. Often it could be that the quiet ones are the more severely injured. So just file that away in the back of your head too. And um, let me just turn the page here. You know, the theme is hidden treasure. And just to bring it back to gardening, did you know that your garden could provide first aid for people? Your garden has hidden first aid treasure. Your garden can provide first aid for those wounded by sin. It can provide first aid for those who don't yet know the creator and they don't even know what they're missing. And it can also provide first aid physically and mentally for the sick, those who are seeking healing. We have some wonderful promises and assurances about the blessings um, to be gained from being outside in the garden. So I hope that was uh, helpful to you. It's kind of a flyover bird's eye view of the topic. It's a massive topic, 
um, and I encourage you to do your own research and education. Uh, consider this talk today as kind of the hors d'oeuvres and for the main course, you'll have to serve yourself and uh, do some extra training, get some books, read up about it. If you're looking for some resources about rural type first aid, uh, wilderness type first aid, um, here's some resources up here on the screen you can look at. I don't necessarily endorse their methodologies or their philosophies or you know whatever. These are just some of the best known uh, resources out there. And you know, if you are two hours or more from a hospital, that's money and time well spent to get that training. And as I said, all of us are going to be needing to know these things more um, as time passes so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you can teach us and inspire us how we can use our gardens as first aid for those that need to be touched by you, as well as helping us to remember these things in times that we will need them, that we can be your hands and feet to help others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.